the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. How you doing, Lindsay? Um, I'm really excited to do this movie. Yeah. We we came off of a, a pretty dark and um, maybe not like the best example of a relationship with, with misery. Yeah. And we're moving on to a really sweet movie filled with a lot of violence. Yeah. But a very sweet movie. Another violent love story. Is there any other kind, yeah, really? Right. <laughs> and that is True Romance yeah. from 93. And I hadn't seen this movie, and there's a good reason why I hadn't, but I'm I'm glad I got over that little nugget in my brain, and I, I really do love this movie now. Yeah, this has uh, always been one that I've loved. Even when it came out, I enjoyed yeah. it. And uh, I, I re- you know, this is one that I always see people... I mean, this is one that people are pretty vocal about their mm-hmm. love of... Of this film, even though it wasn't a hit when it came out, I feel like it's garnered a large, large fan base uh, since the 90s. I did wonder if this movie would have performed better at the box office if it had come out, you know, a little bit later in Quentin Tarantino's career. He he wrote this, he didn't direct it. If that had something to do with it, because I, I don't know why... It, it should have it should have done better. Yeah, I think it would have done way better if it came out like nineteen ninety five. Yeah. Or ninety six. Just yeah. it's it's just chock full of so many great actors and you know, just um filled with sweetness, a boy girl couple that are so in love with each other and on the run from something and there's d- drugs and violence and I mean, come on, that's what everybody wanted in the early nineties. <laughs> Yeah, and this is, I think, of all the the, Tar- the early Tarantino scripts, to me, uh, this one is a- somewhat aged fairly well. A lot of the, the dialogue is still pretty catchy. It doesn't seem like it's trying to be catchy. You know, if it seems to flow pretty natural. I think a lot of that has to do with just the stellar cast that that uh, was a part of this thing. But, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite uh, Quentin Tarantino scripts in... Definitely my favorite Tony Scott movie by a, by a pretty large stretch. And the fact that Tony Scott, who's, let's see, best known, would you say, for Top Gun and Days of Thunder? I would say, you know, universally, but I feel like this is a movie that he's known, you know, more known for, too. Mm-hmm. Now, nowadays, anyway. Yeah. And Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of his, so that's kind of how... This whole thing came about, and um, we can't wait to tell you about this movie. Yeah, lots to talk about. Obviously, mm-hmm. we'll talk about the script, the the characters, the cast. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Tony Scott, R.I.P. I know it's been a while, oh, yeah. but, but still, still, still yeah. sad. Also, we'll probably go into a little bit deeper on the the characters, and especially the the two main characters of Clarence and Alabama, and their relationship. And we always love a good genre blender on this podcast and man this one just puts it all in a blender and um it's a beautiful movie in the end yeah and we'll talk a little bit about the you know when the movie came out that sort of like early to mid 90s when crime films were really hot where its placement is and in, in that moment in film history we'll definitely talk about the cast quite a bit because this is 
Oh yeah. Uh, I think, you know, probably one of the the largest well-known casts for a movie, especially, uh, you know, a lot of these actors have gone on to be really huge, um, you know, household names. A lot of actors took a little part, so we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that. And I, I don't know if he still feels the same way, but Quentin Tarantino said that there's uh, a scene that's most known as the Sicilian scene that is maybe his favorite thing he's ever written. We'll we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, talk about we'll our favorite mo- moments of the movie. Oh, yeah. We'll also uh, talk about how there's a little controversy with the MPAA and how there's a completely different ending that was filmed, finished, done, and why they opted to not go with it. So, yeah. So, True Romance, our main feature. Uh, then we'll get into our picks of the week. I kept uh, things on the Tarantino tip with From Dust Till Dawn, which came out in 1995, sort of one year after Tarantino's smash into yeah. international uh, superstardom with Pulp Fiction. I just watched that again recently. It it had been since it came out, I think, since I watched it. I went the Patricia Arquette route and did Beyond Rangoon, which I actually hadn't seen before, and I'd always wanted to. I just uh, had never uh, gone there, and I'm really glad that I did. So that's what I'll be doing. I've yet to see Beyond Rangoon, so... Well, you have my Amazon password, and I bought it, so yeah. don't... I'll, I'll get you, into it. If you could not share it. my password on the podcast, that'd be great. I'll try not to. I've already shared it with, like, three people. I've texted them. Makes sense. So, uh, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But before we get into our first clip from True Romance, Lindsay, as always, can you please give us your lowdown on what this movie's about? I would love to, Justin. All right, so true romance. After a life-altering fairy tale magical night together, a comic book store guy with no life and a sex worker with a heart of gold, uh, Clarence in Alabama, decide that they want to spend the rest of their lives together. And after Clarence decides to divorce Alabama from her pimp, which ends up in a murderous scene and accidental taking of an entire case of cocaine, they realize that this could be the ticket to a new life. So they head to L.A. to kind of go with this idea of selling this cocaine kind of on the cheap or, you know, a wholesale price, whatever you would sell a suitcase full of coke for, and hopefully start a new life together in Mexico. It sounds pretty easy, right? Um, There's a lot involved in this. It's not necessarily a road trip movie, but it is very much an action adventure movie. And the whole time, these kids are just in love. Yeah, very much like you said, has like a fairy tale vibe to it. I think that that aspect too, I think you have to see it all the way through and then see it again to understand that it is a fairy tale because it's so very reality based and yeah, very, very gritty and and real seeming. But um, if you think about it, what happens in it, it is ridiculous. Yeah, totally ridiculous. (laughs) But it's awesome at the same time. (laughs) It's a complete fantasy. Yeah. We'll go to our first clip from True Romance, and we'll come back. We'll talk about it. Hey, shut up. I'm trying to come clean, okay? I've been a call girl for exactly four days, and you're my third customer. I want you to know that I'm not damaged goods. I'm not what they call Florida white trash. I'm a really good person. And when it comes to relationships, I'm 100%. I'm 100% monogamous. You stay with one guy? Exactly. If I'm with you, 
Romance came out in 1993, about a year before Tarantino kind of exploded on the scene with Pulp Fiction. Um, he had certainly already made a name for himself in the indie world with Reservoir Dogs, but this is one of the few uh, scripts that he did not direct himself. Once he kind of made it big, he he's pretty much directed every movie that he's written. And this movie was one of the few scripts that he wrote early in his career that he sold uh, this script, along with Natural Born Killers, it was directed by Oliver Stone, which is a script that uh, was kind of changed and uh, to I guess for the worse for uh, Tarantino because it's a it's a movie that he disowns and refuses to yeah. watch or yeah. most of the time acknowledge without harsh words. <laughs> but Tarantino was a huge Tony Scott fan. If you know even remotely a little bit about Tarantino, you know that he's a huge film buff. Uh, he got to start in working in the video store. And if you've ever listened to him in interviews, the guy's like a film encyclopedia. He has a passionate, hardcore love for cinema. And uh, that's very evident in his movies. You know, he does a lot of homages and uh, definitely borrows from things. But is a very significantly uh, strong screenwriter and very evident in True Romance. I, I think that he's a a writer that um, is really great at capturing realistic situations and kind of like honing in on how characters interact with each other, but at the same time being able to work in crackerjack sort of dialogue um, that's like really fast and dare I say the word cool, you know, you find yourself remembering these lines and remembering the lines that characters say. I think even more than his directing talent, what I what I appreciate is his writing. Because, yeah, the way that he writes dialogue has a way of feeling like it is natural, but no one says lines like that that are that memorable and that catchy. But they, it doesn't feel like it's forced or like that it's it's something that wouldn't naturally happen. Yeah, he has he has a way of making natural dialogue seem cool. Yeah, <laughs> all the time. But yeah, his his writing is uh, my, my favorite thing about him. And with True Romance, like I said, Quentin Tarantino was a huge Tony Scott fan. Like, he admired his work well before he started writing scripts and was seemed pretty excited about the fact that uh, Tony Scott would be handling, got the option for the, the movie and would be making it. And, and he had given Tony Scott Reservoir Dogs and True Romance, and Tony Scott read both scripts and wanted to do both of them pretty much immediately and Quentin Tarantino said you get one and I'm doing Reservoir Dogs so you can do True Romance 
and, and I'm glad that uh, Tony Scott didn't do Reservoir Dogs because I feel like True Romance was way more in his vibe of filmmaking, his and style. I'm, and I'm glad Quentin Tarantino didn't direct True Romance because it would have been a completely different feel of a movie. How it comes off in Tony Scott's version, I, I feel like it is much lighter while at the same time communicating you know, a lot of really intense, violent situations, but... It, it would have been, a one, a completely different structure, which which we should probably talk about, too, and much darker of yeah. the film. Yeah, the original script to True Romance was very much written uh, like a lot of Tarantino's movies, yes. where yeah. the stories are, you know, very out of sequence. You know, things don't have a very narrative flow structure. So True Romance was very much in the same, you know, exactly like that, how Pulp Fiction was, and yeah. Reservoir Dogs, and... Tony Scott was the one that wanted to say, you know, let's do the movie like the storyline from A to B to C mm -hmm. instead of like jumping back and forth in time. And I think how it was written was like how the movie starts. And we see how Alabama and Clarence meet and fall in love in this in this one night. That scene, that whole sequence up until like when Clarence kills the pimp that is actually the second act of of the original script and we have all of this basically it's the setup of you're given pieces to the story and you're like wait what's going on exactly yeah. and you and you learn that Clarence and Alabama were part of some like they stole some cocaine and they killed a bunch of people what are you serious and then you get to the the part of the story where we learn how they got together and then it all makes sense yeah. and you realize they're not murderous crazy people and then by the third act you realize that you kind of know exact you know more than what the characters know at this point i mean it's a cool setup but i appreciate the linear well, yeah, and, and i think Tony that i think that that works it works so well in reservoir dogs and, and pulp fiction but for this movie i think like everything hinges on the fact that we the audience fall in love with the fact Care that they them. fall in love and so it's um, it's almost like you need that in the way that this movie hits so hard, I think, is like better than most romantic comedies or like movies about romance where, I mean, just in the scene where Patricia Arquette and uh, Christian Slater, I mean, they've only been together for like eight, <laughs> eight to ten minutes of the film. And then she she, you know, declares her love for him and he does the same. And it's a very kind of emotionally intense yeah. scene. And I and think you believe that, it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's why we're willing to go on this ride and sort of like subject ourselves to all these sort of like crazy violent outbursts that these characters perform later in the movie because we've grown to love them. And the movie really does a great job of like showing that these are two young, carefree kids that are pretty naive. Tarantino put a lot, he packed a lot in there, like under the layers. Like, you know, it is a very straightforward, simple story, but I think there's a lot of moments where you truly do see that these characters don't know each other that well. And this is, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like young love, like lust. Not that it's n not important and that it doesn't mean anything, but like, uh, because they're, you know, they meet each other and then like 24 hours later they're married and they're like on the run. It, there's little moments where you, you, the script kind of reminds you like, no, they, they don't know each other that well. They're going minute by minute and they can, I, I think that if this was a couple that had been together for 20 years, it would have, you know, I mean, it would just play much differently. You know, there would, you know, it's like you wouldn't have this sort of like not thinking things through and just like going full speed, 100 miles per hour. And I also think if it wasn't set up like a fairy tale and it was, you know, much more straightforward story, like 
actually happening. There would be so many more instances where you would see that they don't know each other very well and, yeah. and there'd be a weird interaction. But in this, they're just they're just going with it. They're in it together. They're in this ride together. And you somehow still believe it. And I think it was a really good working relationship between Tony Scott and Tarantino. Tony Scott, even in the commentary for the True Romance DVD, uh, has, you know, kind of multiple times, you know, said like, this is the movie that people come up to him and they, they talk about the most. And he kind of really quotes the success of the movie and, and the way it flows to Tarantino's words. It was certainly a script that like went around Hollywood and first was really rejected by studios. Mm-hmm. But once it hit the hands of actors, like everybody wanted to be in this movie, you know, we'll get into that in our next discussion, but it's, it's, it was clear that this was a, a, a movie that, you know, you could, it was just so rich, like off the page, like you could, you could see the intensity, you know, the, of the characters, like it just like really came alive. And I think Tony Scott did a great job of capturing not only the essence of like the young love, but showing like dynamics in these very intense like action scenes, which is something that Tony oh, Scott yeah. really had already been known for in his career. Yeah, he didn't have to rework or change anything. I think Tarantino said that basically, aside from the structure and the ending, everything in this is exactly the script. And Tony Scott was also known to be a director that was really open and receptive to actors' opinions and encouraging them to find their characters and wasn't someone that was strict and it like it, it has to be my way or nobody's way, nothing like that, such as kind of the case um, with the ending. Um, he, he did have a very strong opinion about that for Tarantino and really did want the ending to take a different turn than what Tarantino's original script was. In the original writing, Clarence, the Christian Slater character, dies. Um, In Tony Scott's version, he and Patricia Arquette survive. It's a very happy ending. And um, Tarantino was originally kind of not on board with that. That's not the vibe he wanted or what he saw for this. And Tony Scott, out of respect, shot both endings completely fully both endings and I think probably in his heart he he knew which one he was going to go with but he said he wasn't going to make a decision until he got into the editing room and his reason for it and Tarantino even said you know he couldn't argue with it was you know you spend two hours with this couple and you believe their love for each other and you really you grow to love them and love the characters and he just said that he loved them so much he just couldn't see them die and yeah, how do you kind of argue with that? It's got a very Romeo and Juliet vibe. So oh, I could for see, sure. so I could see the aspect of like wanting to see the character die. Tony Scott even said, you know, I went for like the the Hollywood sellout ending or whatever. But a lot of times those are what people want and that's and it makes you feel good and I think it it fits in this movie. I think like there's enough yeah. rough violence in this yeah. movie to not also have the that's the, a good point. the character die on top of everything else that you you're put through. And those movies that where you go for the quote unquote Hollywood sellout ending, those are romantic comedies. They're not, and and this is, there's a lot of dark humor in this, but this is like an action movie. And I think it would be, it would make much more sense to have a character die or like that go within that vein of having a character die. But I love that it, it, it challenges a lot of usual tropes that you expect to happen and I, I love that about this movie I actually thought Patricia Arquette was gonna die in the in the scene where she gets beaten up just horribly beaten up by James Gandolfini 
And that would have fallen in with, um, you know, a trope of a woman dying before a man, too. But I love the ending of this movie anyway. Yeah, I, I love the ending. I think it it works great. And, you know, I, I do like that there's it's sort of um, I do love that they drop in, you know, they have her narration in the beginning of the movie and then they have her narration at the end. And I think it's a nice bookend. And it also kind of goes with that same theme of like a fairy tale fairy story, tale. storybook kind of thing. Yeah. We'll stop there. We'll go to another clip and then we'll come back. We'll talk about the cast and characters of the movie and uh, a little bit about the reception of the film. Sounds good. We're going to have a little Q&A. And at the risk of sounding redundant, please... Make your answers genuine. You want a Chesterfield? No. I have a son, my own, about your boy's age. I can imagine how painful this must be for you, but Clarence, an habitual girlfriend of his, brought this all on themselves. I implore you not to go down that road with them. You can always take comfort in the fact you never had a choice. Look, I'd like to help you if I could, but I haven't seen Clarence. You see that? And smarts, doesn't it? And slammed in the nose. Fucks you all up. Get that pain shooting through your brain, your eyes fill up with water. That ain't any kind of fun. But what I have to offer you, that's as good as it's gonna get. And it won't ever get that good again. We talked to your neighbors. They saw a Cadillac. Purple Cadillac. Clarence's purple Cadillac parked in front of your trailer yesterday. Mr. Wally, you seen your son? I seen him. I can't be sure of how much of what he told you, so in the chance you're in the dark about some of this, let me shed some light. That whore your boy hangs around with, a pimp, is an associate of mine. I mean, just pimping and other affairs. He works for me in a courier capacity. Well, apparently. A dirty little whore found out I'm going to do some business because your son, the cowboy, his flame, came in the room blazing and didn't stop till they were pretty sure everybody was dead. What are you talking about? Talking about a massacre. They snatched my narcotics, hightailed it out of there. Would have got away with it, but your son, fuckhead that he is, left his driver's license in a dead guy's hand. <laughs> you know, I don't believe you. That's of minor importance. What is of major fucking importance is that I believe you. Where did they go? On their honeymoon. You know, I think it's funny that you brought up earlier uh, how this feels like a road movie, even though it's not a road yeah. road movie. <laughs> yeah. And it, I think it does like very much like feel like a road movie in the sense that like road movies usually involve like a main character or two main characters, and they meet all these other characters along the way. Because um, that's very much like what this movie is. But we are introduced to a bunch of different characters along the way that have very small parts. Some characters that the main, the two main. Uh, characters don't even associate with or, or really ever meet, but we in audience get to see these characters and there's really no small parts that go unnoticed in this film. Oh my gosh, yeah. But before we get into all the small 
bit players of mm-hmm. the cast. Uh, we really wanted to talk about the two main characters, and that's uh, Clarence in Alabama, portrayed by Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. Very dynamic and awesome screen duo here. You really can't kind of take your eyes off of them. Uh, even though that there's all this interplay with all these other rich and funny characters. But they just have such a great chemistry, even from the very first moment that they uh, meet in the movie theater. I just have this infatuation with the characters, like you want to see what happens next with them. They are really adorable. And from what Tony Scott has said about it when they met each other, I think he was originally wanting Drew Barrymore for the Patricia Arquette role. When she came in and met with Christian Slater, it was kind of like love at first sight. And he was like, well, this is pretty much a sealed deal because they really get on really well. And you can see it on screen. For a fairy tale type of movie where two characters spend eight hours together, you've really got to, I mean, you got to believe that, that these two guys love each other or else what's the point? And, And I think that that is partly their separate acting talents because they are very solid actors but um together yeah you gotta buy it like Clarence is supposed to be this lonely comic book store geek and just looking to make a connection we see that in the the first opening he's hitting on someone and the the woman is just not meeting him halfway and Patricia Arquette is outside of the narrative outside of the 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 movie itself she kind of represents this ideal girl this dream girl that doesn't exist and quentin tarantino said that this was the most personal writing he'd he'd done and i don't know if he realized it while he was writing it or it was kind of an afterthought that he was basically writing himself i think he said something like he didn't have a real relationship until his mid-20s too and he's just very much this christian slater character yeah, and I think even though that the that her character, again, like you said, like embodies this sort of like fantasy character, and it very much I feel like as well written as her character is, and as great as Patricia Arquette is, it very much is like this sort of like nerd male fantasy character, <laughs> you know, where he's like, yeah, you want to see what Spider Man one looks like, and she's like, yeah, yes, like, I totally yeah, do. Yeah. You were the <laughs> it's coolest. just like you know, she <laughs> he like takes her to a comic book store, and like, and this is back when you know now like comic books movies and everything are so huge but 1993 comic books were not in the mainstream like they are now so it was a you know it really shows like this guy was like kind of lonely and even the when we see him and Patricia Arquette in the cafe he's already restating we hear the tail end of Mm -hmm. the tale that he told in the beginning it's like these are the stories this guy has he kind of just like he has like three (laughs) things that he talks about and that's you know pretty much it. it yeah and that's not to say that you know, she's just living for him. I don't think that at all. And uh, and I think that that becomes glaringly obvious when he, after they get married, he's like, so uh, I'm going to break you out of your pimp situation and I'm going to go kill this guy. On top of being a partner, a wife, she's also like his best friend and they truly do get along and he wants to help her in the same way that she's helped him. Yeah, and even though, uh, you know, it's this sort of like hooker with a heart of gold trope. There <laughs> I is- love that trope. But there is, but there is. I feel, I feel the sense of like, you, you know, I can see how she likes Christian Slater because, like, as soon as they meet up, he's not really like pursuing her like in a sexual way. Yeah, you know, he's like passionate about these things when he's talking. And I think that that's like a turn on to her, and he immediately he stops himself like he's talking about 
himself and then he stops and he goes okay what am i doing here let me hear about you i want to hear about you and he like flips it most people if they're dating you know the spark of like oh you're okay you're wanting you're You're, interested you're actually interested in what i want to think yeah yeah and so there is something there and i think that um they the the characters are are intertwined really well and i think that like yeah you're giving so little but you do feel like even though it's such a really just like this tiny span of time you've watched like the most perfect date on the planet unfold and you know once they have like their love making scene you know like i said you have this like before like this very powerful scene where they're out on the sign and she confesses her loves and yeah. she admits that she's a call girl but that she'll never lie to him again you know and then boom they're just they're married yeah <laughs> you know it well, cuts to them like it. walking out you know it's like hey that's all we need to, that's all we need to know we want to spend the rest of our lives together and i do love that sort of like naive um young like sort of like throw caution to the wind mm-hmm. this is it we're, we're gonna put everything we're gonna bet everything on on it and we're gonna we're gonna go for it it's the young and dumb thing but it's still valid it's this like falling in love with innocence and with alabama coming from the ugly world that she's been so used to that is incredibly intriguing and she's um yeah it's um it's such a sweet story Things are kind of wild, like after uh, Clarence kills um, her pimp portrayed by Gary Oldman, um, there's a scene where he come, you know, he, he comes back to her. Patricia Arquette's character, Alabama, really isn't too keen on him going to even confront yeah. the Drexel, her yeah. pimp character, and get her belonging. She's like, I just want to put this behind me. But it's more about his ego, like this is something I have to do. And the commentary with Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette Christian Slater said that when they were filming, he didn't like the idea that he comes back and he's like yelling at her uh, kind of very aggressively um, saying, you know, do you love him? Like he's like kind of freaking out and she's trying to get her words out. You know, she's trying to get her bearings to eventually say it's so romantic. And he said he didn't like the idea that, you know, he's screaming at her. He and they talked him into doing it. You know, they talked about it. And that's always a scene to me that it was funny when I was hearing him say that, like, as I've watched the movie a few times in the last few weeks, it does seem pretty harsh, you know, Mm -hmm, it does. And it seems kind of odd. But at the same time, I think the reason it works so well is because it gives you a glimpse of the fact that like they don't know each other that well. And this is him, you know, he, I mean, even though he just killed somebody and he's all amped up, he has an angry dark side to him that she hasn't seen yet because they've literally only known each other for like 24 hours. And she also don't, doesn't know that he also sees and talks to Elvis. Yes. Um, that's, That's something we haven't talked about either. He adores Elvis loves him, looks at him as like some type of father figure or yeah. yeah, or mentor. There's a little, there's a darker side to Clarence. Like can't really put a pin on it. They don't spend too much time on it, but there's obviously um, a darkness to him. He definitely can like kind of go off the handle. And, just kill and, somebody and yeah. not be two-faced. Yeah, and, and, not, and also not really feel too bad about it, you know? No. And kind of like, okay, here's what we need to do next. Just you know? like making that commitment. Yeah. Um, the man he does kill is probably my favorite uh, role in the movie. Uh, Gary Oldman, who you mentioned, who plays Drexel the pimp, uh, who's a white guy with dreadlocks that thinks he's black, and that's how Tony Scott described the character to Gary Oldman. And after not being able to give him like a, you know, breakdown of what the movie was about, he just gave him a character description and Gary Oldman was like, well, I'm sold. I'm totally doing that movie. 
he's he's my favorite. He's just so gosh darn good. It, <laughs> Gary Holman's performance this is insane. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, yeah, uh, you know. I'm sure it's offensive, but I mean, yeah. like his entire character is just offensive. Yeah, it's in every way. So many, like we said, so many great small roles in this movie. Um, probably the most notable role in this movie that people remember the most is is Dennis Hopper, who plays Christian Slater's character's son, uh, Christopher Walken, who who plays yeah. like a sort of a sub boss to the mob that is chasing down uh, Alabama and Clarence because they're trying to get their narcotics back that they uh, accidentally swiped from the crime scene after Clarence kills Drexel. Mm-hmm. And they have this, it's a very controversial scene. Definitely in 2019, this is a movie I've never played in my backyard because, <laughs> you know, it's a rougher scene to watch nowadays than it was in 1993. But it's still... Uh, I think you see two actors sort of at the top of their game, kind of like going back and forth, Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. And it's pretty intense and it, it, it really uh, amps up the the tension in this movie and kind of makes you realize how like much trouble uh, is going to await uh, Clarence in Alabama with this, with these mobsters coming after them. And with that scene, which is often called the Sicilian scene, it should also be said that yes, Obviously, there's some words that are not used. There's some, I mean, it's the whole exchange is racist. Um, but one, it's intentional. Dennis Hopper is in, intentionally trying to anger Christopher Walken. And just as a, you know, backstory, that this story was told to Quentin Tarantino as a kid by a family friend known as Big D. And apparently when when Big D saw this movie, he hit Quentin's mom and was like, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, people need to know about this. I've been I've been saying this for years. So, yes, this scene is very cr- cringeworthy when you watch it. But just a little backstory of where it came from, I think, is kind of interesting or yeah. important to note. And uh, another uh, favorite character of mine is. Brad Pitt's portrayal of Floyd, the uh, lazy stoner roommate, and uh, who hasn't had one of those really? <laughs> and and Brad Pitt was already kind of on his way. I mean, he had been, you know, in five or six movies. I mean, he hadn't like kind of hit it big yet, the Brad Pitt that we know today. Mm-hmm. But it was a tiny role for him at that moment. But he was like, no, I know this character. He improved a lot of that stuff that wasn't in the script. I mean, he kind of made that character more memorable. And yeah, I just he. It just reminds me so much of so many people that, you know, uh, from back in the day that, you know, or just sort of like you go to meet up with your friend and their roommates sort of like in the background, kind of just like stoned and, you know, kind of like, hey, hell, hey, you know, and that you never really have like a real conversation with them. There's just always this sort of like weird stumbling. And uh, yeah, I really, um, I really enjoy his take on, on the stoner dude. Yeah. And Michael Rapaport, who uh, plays Dick Ritchie, who is uh, Brad Pitt's roommate and Christian Slater's best friend. The dynamic between uh, Michael Rapaport's character and Brad Pitt's, they really worked on that. And I guess kind of brought up Brad Pitt's character a little bit more, worked him into some dialogue to make him, even if he wasn't on screen, make him more of a character and how Floyd was talked about. 
um, just that he was kind of always present. And Michael Rappaport's character, he he does a great job in this role uh, too. I got to say, Michael Rappaport is one of those few actors that uh, has just been playing himself for like twenty five <laughs> years. But I just I love Michael Rappaport. Yeah. I always enjoy like him, his sort of like uh, hyper kind of oafy, very very bit. very like you know New York accented so like, New York. Uh, has you know, he ever East Coast not no. talked to like oh himself? no no he's always just <laughs> I mean he's always even uh he's currently on the show um atypical um mm-hmm. that I really enjoy on Netflix and uh I mean yeah he he's pretty much just like a grown-up Dick Ritchie who's <laughs> you know who's like a paramedic but he like has the same you know his mannerisms and everything or he's he's pretty much just like stayed one note but uh God love him he, he's he's great at just being himself yeah, and he's great in this role. Um, also, early role by uh, Samuel L. Jackson, who's not in it very much. He gets killed very, very early on uh, by Gary Oldman's Drexel character. He also had a little bit more to that scene that was cut out, but an early role by Samuel L. Jackson. And two of my favorite characters in this are played by Bronson Pinchot, who plays uh, Elliot Blitzer, and uh, his boss who is the uh, big Hollywood producer who's going to, that they're trying to sell the uh, the cocaine to. Saul Rubinek plays like this sort of, I don't know if it's an exaggerated version of an executive, a big Hollywood executive, but he plays uh, Lee Donowitz. It gives one of the most accurate portrayals of someone who's just uh, snorted a really strong cocaine like three or four minutes prior. From, from what Tony Scott and Tarantino said about his portrayal, that, they said that it was really spot on. Like that that's pretty much what a dick movie producer acts like. And he does do a really good job. He's one of those people that somehow like everything he says is so mean and terrible, but it's like it's funny <laughs> yes. just because it's just so harsh and like yeah. on on point. And Bronson Pinchot just uh, I love Bronson Pinchot and just about everything he does. Yeah. But this movie I think he just has a lot of great layers. You know, like kiss ass, mm-hmm. um, but then also uh, gets himself into some heavy water because he he accidentally gets busted with the coke pre uh, meeting with Lee Donowitz and so the uh, the cops who bust him coerce him into wearing a wire um, those cops also two great small performances played by Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn yeah um, that also add a little humor a lot of humor in this movie really it's a pretty funny script it's it's some um, sometimes dark humor sometimes mean humor but yes the um, kind of laughs kind of come up and hit you and you don't you're not expecting it yeah and finally uh val kilmer plays uh the mentor the mentor the (laughs) incarnation of elvis who you know who's i guess in clarence's head and uh apparently val kilmer like he spent like three weeks like watching every elvis movie and like you know bought the clothes and got real into it because originally uh you were going to see the full embodiment of him like you know it was like a wide shot where you see both of them uh, in in the bathroom is generally where um, yeah. he talks to Clarence. Private time. Um, but uh, I guess Tony Scott said that the only person who can do Elvis is Elvis, and he didn't feel like it was working is is that moment. So he told Val Kilmer, um, the movements and everything, the voice is great, but I'm not going to show your face. And it really, I think it works to the movie's favor. I yeah. love the mystery of it, and I love that we don't uh, you know really see it. And I also think it's like, I want to say like Val Kilmer's like uncredited in the movie. 
I don't know if he like has a credit in the movie, but I I do love that he you know does a small role and I think he does a really great job. Mm-hmm. I think they tried the makeup and it didn't work out, and I Tony Scott was already on the fence about keeping it kind of a mystery and a little blurry in the background. So um, happy accident that it all worked out. And I love this sort of theme of Elvis that that sort of is like throughout the movie, like with a you know they don't do any they couldn't get the rights to any actual Elvis songs but you know there's sort of like this Rocky Billy soundtrack mm-hmm. and the way uh you know the obsession with Elvis with the Christian Slater character and the glasses and the glasses and, and there's just a, you know a lot of little touches a lot of flair that this sort of like hits on this sort of uh, obsession with Elvis right on down to Alabama and Clarence's wedding ring which was uh also Elvis's wedding ring the mysterious diamond uh, horseshoe ring, which I kind of have an obsession with. So one last little thing to talk about before we move on to our picks of the week was this movie uh, was not a success at the box office, uh, just sort of like kind of broke even. It wasn't really a very high budgeted movie for Tony Scott at the time. You know, when I watch the movie now, it's kind of shocking to me that it wasn't a big hit. But at the same time, I can kind of see in 1993 for a mainstream movie with a lot of actors in it, this movie was pretty violent and it got a lot of negative criticism for its violence. When you watch it now, I mean, granted, it's still a pretty violent movie, but it's really yeah. not anything is uh, more violent than most stuff that I watch on Netflix, like original Netflix series or HBO, like stuff in the mainstream nowadays is, is way more intense than I think it was in 1993. And I also think too, this, you know, Tarantino's words and his scripts were very, um, new to people, you know, and like, uh, no one was really riffing on like pop culture stuff. That wasn't like a thing. Eventually people caught on and Pulp Fiction was a, you know, huge, gigantic success. But I think at the time for like an action movie, I think a lot of people might've been like, what is this? You know, this is pre, you know, <laughs> they're not being uh, an underground for anything. You know, now yeah. everything is out there. It's a shame that the movie wasn't a success when it came out, but it has certainly become, I think, like a touchstone of Tony Scott's career. And I think it's, you know, universally loved now and like well-known film. So many people do love this movie. And the, on the violence tip, the scene where Alabama uh, is beaten to a bloody pulp by James Gandolfini, that scene is very difficult to watch. But I think that is the intention is that it, it is supposed to be awful. And, and, you know, you're supposed to feel like, Alabama's going to die. One thing that I kind of found fascinating was that Tarantino said that the MPAA was okay with it up until a certain point, and that was when Alabama fights back. And apparently that was because they said something like, just because she turns into a complete animal. And Tarantino at the time was taken aback and like, well, that's what you want her to do. Like, you want her to fight back. And that was what they had a problem with, which is kind of uh, a little strange, especially when you watch that scene, because that's the moment that, you know, you should be cheering, actually. And that's the that's the moment with it that you want to see. And it does get really bad, uh, but it's also, you know, she was about ready to die. Yeah. And one last thing I want to say is to not fail and mention James Gandolfini. Love um, that dude. You know, this went on to, you know, he's most well known as uh, heading up the Sopranos, but this was uh, pre-Sopranos. I think this is like one of his first big 
you know, film roles, even though it was like kind of small, but where he was like noticeable and man, every moment that he's like on screen is like very captivating. And, mm-hmm. and he just, see, he comes off as just like very calm and the way he talks is like kind of sweet, but he's like so sinister yeah. <laughs> and very scary. I mean, I, I feel like even just as he plays one of the more like scary, like hit mans that have, has been like committed to film. He's so terrifying. He's someone I know. I I would just fall into him and be like, I believe everything that you're saying. And then he'd shank me. He's so believable in that smile. And he was really into this part, too. He wanted yeah. Patricia Arquette to really stab him in the foot with a corkscrew. And she was like, I'm not okay with that. Yeah, he was actually. like very method. Like Tony Scott said he like lived in this like sort of crummy hotel for three weeks and like stopped showering and didn't change his underwear <laughs> though oddly i don't really see I, he doesn't to me his character doesn't, doesn't look like this sort of like, like yeah he doesn't seem like sort of like this like scummy character um but you know whatever whatever you gotta do to to get to where he got to be able to pull off that role you know yeah yeah the scene with he and brad pitt where he comes over to the house and brad pitt's just being a stoner on a couch for some reason that that whole interaction yeah. is really funny to me <laughs> Well, let's move on to our picks of the week. Again, I went for, uh, I kept it on Tarantino with uh, From Dust Till Dawn, and you went for the Patricia Arquette starring Beyond Rangoon. What can you tell me about that movie? I don't usually go for picks of the week I haven't seen before, so it's really validating when one works out, such as this John Borman film, Beyond Rangoon. The setup for this movie is this. In order to distract herself from some real-life trauma, two sisters, played by Patricia Arquette and Frances McDormand, go on a guided vacation to Burma, taking in beautiful ancient ruins and whatnot. McDormand's hope is to distract her sister from a personal tragedy, that of finding her husband and son murdered in their home not that long before. Almost from the onset of this across-the-world adventure, we, along with McDormand's character, know that this trip isn't working as a distraction and was probably a mistake. Arquette's character of Laura is visibly unmoved by the incredible scenery and this once-in-a-lifetime experience. So she's shrouded in sunglasses, maybe shielding herself from any sign of life or happiness. Laura seems to be closer to death than life. And here is the crux of the movie. This fictional nightmare story, which transpires, might seem a little predictable at times, but that kind of gets thrown by the wayside when you realize these events in the movie were actually happening during August of 1988 and were inspired by real people who were murdered by the Burmese government at the time. Although it's very unintentional, Laura gets involved with an ousted former university instructor turned unofficial tour guide and some university students during the very real event of the 8888 Uprising, or the People Power Uprising. These marches and general civil unrest were directed at the Burmese totalitarian dictatorship and, although nationwide, were largely organized by the students at two universities in Rangoon. Thousands of people were murdered by the military force depicted in the movie. And this may be a fictional story, but the weight of it is certainly not. And Beyond Rangoon definitely helped bring to light the injustices in this part of the world. So on the surface, Beyond Rangoon looks like, oh, sure, Americans care about this story because a white lady gets involved. Or at least I could see how someone would feel that way. But it's kind of a cheap shot and a little short-sighted because this movie did bring to light what was happening in the country or what had happened a few years before and helped garner worldwide attention. 
The very real female Democratic leader depicted in the film was placed under house arrest by the government um, after her party won a fair election shortly after what we see in the film. Refusing to hand over power, the dictatorship put An Young Suu Kyi um, under house arrest for five years, five plus years. And the release of Beyond Rangoon was most likely responsible for her being uh, let out of house arrest only a month after the movie's release. Uh, five years later, however, the government, over the course of the next 10 years, would detain her, again place her under house arrest, and straight up imprison this woman. And this lady won a Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, obviously there's a lot of real story behind Beyond Rangoon, and I encourage you to research that, but this John Borman film brought attention to something very serious happening in the world, and if it took a fictional white lady being one of the main protagonists to make a real-life difference, that's not a negative thing. Visually, this film is stunning. Borman's staging of crowd scenes is impressive and looked painstakingly perfect. And like his most well-known survivalist movie, Deliverance, which we discussed in episode 35, there is a lot of grit, grime, and grossness to the physical hardships endured by the surviving characters trying to escape this uh, murderous dictatorship. There are life-threatening dangers everywhere around Laura and her guide, Unko, as they race together to the safety of Thailand. And speaking of her companion in this harrowing journey, man, their friendship that's formed... I was totally affected and completely believed their bond. Laura's character says something like, there's something comforting about traveling with someone who knows nothing about me. And it really does feel like two genuinely good to the core people, two strangers that are thrown in this life or death scenario, become close and just help each other survive. It's a really believable friendship that's formed. And also, like as a white lady watching this movie, knowing very little about Burma, now known as Myanmar, and late 80s Rangoon, which is now known as Yangon, um, I couldn't help but notice how much communication through the film is done through body language and gestures, and done quite believably. This could be a, a hardship in any country where you don't speak the language, but it's interesting to note how this interacts with the story and how we take verbal communication for granted. It just becomes so obvious in this film when you're faced with a survival situation. And if it weren't for the occasional dreams or flashbacks that Laura has to the murder of her family, I think you may forget the initial setup of the movie. I don't think that's because it's forgettable. I mean, hello, Francis McDormand. But that said... I took this entire experience for Laura's personal narrative anyway as as a way to bring her back to life, to take her outside of her own personal tragedy. Not that hers is any less impactful, unimportant, or should be minimized, but that she's supposed to look beyond it and see how all people are connected, how we can endure pain or injustice for others and band together to persevere through it. So Beyond Rangoon is a very visceral adventure. Um, it was a bold decision, to, I think, to mix a fictional narrative into a real occurrence, but it brought attention to some major injustices um, that happened in that part of the world. I mean, I bought this movie, and I'm totally glad I did. I've already rewatched it a few times, and you need to watch it, Justin. I wouldn't call it a fun adventure film, but it is a very gritty look outside of ourselves that is packed with some heart pounding and emotional moments. Yeah. I'm curious to see this and I didn't until you said you were going to do this as your pick of the week. I'd kind of forgotten that uh, it was a John Borman movie. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I would love to hear you talk about um, From Dust Till Dawn. Having just seen this like two nights ago, I, yeah, I definitely want, want to hear your thoughts on this one. All right. Well, I'll give them to you. Perfect. So between Tarantino's breakout hit, uh, Pulp Fiction in 1994, and uh, his uh, Elmore Leonard uh, adaptation, Jackie Brown, in 97, uh, Tarantino was about as hot as you could be in Hollywood. And uh, even though he was mostly known as a writer-director, um, he did start out wanting to be an actor. And so Tarantino is one of those few directors who were like, you know, that people would recognize in person. Most directors, you know, you don't really see their faces. You might recognize their names. Um, but Tarantino gave himself small parts in uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Around 95, he was getting small parts in some movies, uh, some television and uh, got a starring role in a movie that he wrote the uh, screenplay to From Dust Till Dawn, also starring George Clooney, Harvey Keitel, and Juliette Lewis and Cheech Marin. This movie is very much uh, sort of like Tarantino at his B-movie best. Um, it is, a uh, once again, a crime action uh, thriller, but then sort of like has a head-on collision with a, a vampire movie. And this movie was directed by Tarantino's friend, Robert Rodriguez. Uh, they met on the festival circuit when Robert Rodriguez had his uh, El Mariachi movie. And uh, they went on to do four rooms together and uh, have uh, collaborated several times. They did the Grindhouse uh, double feature movie together. But this is one of their early collaborations. I think this was a great combination of Tarantino's script and Robert Rodriguez's breakneck editing style and pacing. When this movie came out, I was like very much into uh, anything that Tarantino had involvement in. And this, I thought, was a very exciting movie. Watching it recently, the last few weeks... Um, this movie I don't think is held up as well as other Tarantino films. You know, Tarantino is definitely a much better writer-director than he is an actor. I think that this movie could have been a little bit better, had two different leads than George Clooney and Tarantino. But nonetheless, it is a very fast and funny film. Harvey Cattell really evens things out with his acting chops. The movie is about... Clooney and Tarantino play the Gecko Brothers. They're bank robbers who kill a bunch of cops, rob a bank. They kidnap a teller. They're on the run. They decide to kidnap uh, Harvey Keitel and his family, his daughter played by Juliette Lewis, and uh, force them to drive them to Mexico. Uh, when they get to Mexico, they stop at a bar to take shelter and get some food. That bar turns out to be a vampire bar where once it hits dusk, everyone starts training the vampires. The, the last half of the movie is pretty much just like a big battle sequence. <laughs> um, very fast-paced, uh, a lot of fun. This is pretty much like as good as it gets for, you know, sort of a fast-paced B-movie that's done on like a high budget. And it's pretty entertaining. It's not really scary. There's not really like a new take on the vampire genre here. I think the, the most notable thing here is that this is a movie that literally switches gears like halfway through. You know, there's really no indication that it's going to turn into this sort of crazy vampire movie. It just sort of happens. And uh, I feel like in any other movie... Uh, that wouldn't work, but because we've got, you know, Tarantino's sharp dialogue and uh, funny moments, it kind of works out okay, and, you know, the movie kind of just turns into a bloodbath. But 
if you're into Tarantino and this is uh, one of the few movies that you haven't seen of his where he was like the writer, not the director, it's worth the revisit. They also made a, a part two and part three to this uh, movie, which I have not seen, but from the reviews on IMDb, they don't seem to be very well regarded as uh, follow-ups. Yeah, I can kind of see that. This this should be a standalone movie. But it was a really fun revisit. It had been easily 20 years since I'd seen it. And I had forgotten that Harvey Keitel and uh, Juliette Lewis were in it, which is, I I think it's nice to have that addition of a family. It's not just George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino's characters. I like that addition. I I really enjoy Harvey Keitel in this. Oh, and what's his face? Tom Savini, one of the best or most well-known special effects artists out there, Tom Savini. And there's a couple other little like people that pop up, like Fred Williamson, Danny Trejo. Yeah. Well, uh, let's keep on moving. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Hey, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Well, I'm still waiting to find out some details on a Murray moment involving Billy and Christopher Walken, who's in true romance. I did happen upon another great story involving the two. Now, maybe some of you know both Billy and Chris Walken voiced characters in the 2016 version of The Jungle Book. It's a cute movie, classic story, and if Billy's version of Garfield taught us nothing else, the man appreciates the laid-back nature of recording voice tracks for characters in a booth. And in remembering that they did this movie, I found a really kind of funny story uh, from The Jungle Book's director, John Favreau. So Billy had committed to doing The Jungle Book as much as Billy Murray can commit, and Favreau invited him in passing down to a New Orleans recording session for the movie soundtrack. Favreau hoped that Billy might take him up on the invite but wasn't exactly holding his breath. But lo and behold, Billy actually shows up. No announcement, he just shows up. Coincidentally, Favreau was equally as stoked when Chris Walken was able to show up during the recording sessions too. Musicians were coming by to record their parts, and Chris and Billy were able to do their songs and even their scenes together, which was an unplanned occurrence, too. So Favreau lucked out, and it ended up being kind of a time saver. If you don't know the soundtrack, Billy performed the very well-known Jungle Book song, The Bare Necessities, with the well-known New Orleans horn player Kermit Ruffins, while Chris soloed for the song I Want to Be Like You. Well-known musician Dr. John was in the studio for the sessions and even performed a private little number for the guys called Such a Night, one of his songs, uh, which also ended up being one of Walken's favorite songs. So these three dudes, Chris and John Favreau and Billy, sitting around listening to this well-known guy, you know, play piano. It's pretty cute to think about. Favreau really described this moment as a truly magical experience. I'm sure it was. 
Now, before Chris Walken joined them, Billy and Favreau had a little fun in New Orleans. It went from not expecting him to show up to Billy and Favreau hanging out in the back of a kitchen of a restaurant um, where Favreau had some friends. And, of course, they got bombarded with food. Billy was even gracious enough to take photos with the whole kitchen staff, according to Favreau. The night wasn't over then, so the two are are walking around in New Orleans, heading deeper into Frenchman Street, over near a bar called Three Muses, and they were spotted by the band that was playing at the time inside the bar. Glenn David Andrews, a trombonist and singer for the band, waved them to come on inside. So they came on over, did some whiskey shots with the bar staff, and the band surprisingly cranked out that old Ray Parker Jr. song you might know of, the Ghostbusters theme song. And Favreau uh, tells this story, the entire place just exploded. He called this experience one of the most exciting moments of his career and just a really surreal kind of all around. And everyone that was asked about the experience afterwards, it seemed like Billy got a real kick out of the whole thing too, including even saying to Favreau um, as the Ghostbusters song continued on, you know, man, you really need a theme song. I keep finding these mini Murray stories like this kind of all around and I can't help but want to share them um, you know when they come up for the podcast and there are a few more I've come across while researching especially this and the Christopher Walken but I'm still working on the details so for now this is your Murray moment Billy Chris Walken John Favreau making some great moments in New Orleans a place Billy seems to make some pretty memorable moments. So go back and listen to uh, episode 21, our Penny Marshall tribute, and you'll find a extra special New Orleans moment there too. That's pretty cool. I didn't, I actually haven't seen the John oh, yeah. Favreau jungle book. It's pretty cute. And yeah. I mean, it's a classic story too. It's hard for me to watch with my dog who can't handle animals on TV. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. But uh, it Stan is. Stan would have a hard time with that. He does. But it is a cute movie though. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. So do you have any final thoughts on True Romance before we wrap up this episode? I mean, we're big fans of animals in this this podcast, and I couldn't help but notice how many Rottweilers are in this movie randomly. And um, there's there's one scene that you see in the movie, and it's very, very brief. It's in the beginning when Gary Oldman kills Samuel L. Jackson and, and steals his drugs. Uh, that 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 entire scene. So that that scene is actually a little bit longer, and you see every person that Gary Oldman shoots in that scene, including a Rottweiler. And uh, Tony Scott said that that was one of the hardest things he's ever shot was having that dog uh, be blown away by a shotgun, and uh, one of the reasons it was also cut out of the film. And uh, that scene kind of ran a little long but he was uh happy the the it's cut out but you see everybody else in the theatrical cut killed and you get a tiny glimpse of a dead dog at the bottom of the screen but you don't actually see him die so i gotta say thanks tony scott i'm happy i didn't have to see that dog blown away yeah i don't want to see a dog blown over the no. shotgun no what well, about the you any, the only any thing uh, yeah, the only thing i was gonna say is that um i really like the soundtrack to this there's a uh, the uh, theme music of this was actually um, sort of a homage to Badlands, which is also Tony Scott's favorite film, one of his favorite films. But I like that there's a, a mix between the Hans Zimmer score for True Romance mixed in with popular music. You know, we've got Aerosmith, mm-hmm. uh, Soundgarden, Charlie Sexton did a lot of the 
Elvis-ish type songs because they couldn't get the rights to Elvis. Um, and then uh, I love the closing credits with uh, one of my favorite Chris Isaac songs, Two Hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good stuff. And when Tarantino wrote this, I think he, in the script, had put in like the musical cues, like what songs are to be included. And I'm yeah. fairly certain Tony Scott threw out all of them except for one. Anyway. And I, you know, <laughs> I, I think... Uh, you know, Tarantino is as much of a music fanatic as yeah. he is a film fanatic. And yeah. of course I, I really just about every movie he puts out. I, I buy the soundtrack cause mm-hmm. they're all freaking great. Man's got a mind that never stops working. Yeah. Well, uh, we hope you've enjoyed our discussions on true romance things, Tarantino. So, uh, we've been going really serious <laughs> Uh, quite a bit for <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, this the first few months here. So we are going to switch gears. Uh, our next episode will be uh, 1985's uh, Tim Burton directed Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which is one that we've uh, kind of been wanting to do for a while yeah. here. Uh, just like every movie that we do, it's you know yeah. all these are on the back burner, but uh, Pee Wee is on its way. I'm pretty excited. To, yeah, me too. It's kind of like. Uh, you know, because when we do these movies, you know, we've watched them multiple times and I'm looking forward to watching a lighter movie multiple yes. times in one week. <laughs> and noticing all the little things in this movie, too. Yeah, so much stuff. How many times has Large Marge brought up, like, I don't know, every couple, like, weeks in my life anyway? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, thank you for listening. Yeah, and um, if you want to uh, continue to follow us, you can catch us on social media facebook twitter and instagram don't push pause podcast if you want to check out older episodes um, you can always check out our website at don't push pause and if you ever want to contact us directly you can contact us through our website or at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com if you uh, are on itunes and you uh, like what you hear please give us a rating a review we always love hearing from people If you can download the episodes, please do. It helps us track uh, our listeners and where people are listening from. So much love to everybody who's been listening to us from all over the country. What's up, Japan? I know. Thanks. In Hong Kong. (laughs) What's going on? Yeah. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks for listening. Thank you.